0: This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio
1: Player app. All right. I was not in the producer area when they decided to debate this discussion this morning about our hot question of the day. Because I know people will just be ripping their hair out when they hear about this. You know, my house, the Christmas tree went up on the weekend. We've had that discussion, right, about when is the best time to uh, start getting your Christmas stuff up and all that. It looks beautiful, and I'm very happy that we did. But there's nothing under the tree. And I do remember that my grandmother once told me, was my grandmother, my mother, somebody who was really superstitious in my family, that that wasn't good luck, that if you're going to put the tree up, that you should have something wrapped and under the tree. But I'm not quite that organized yet, Now, I did uh, recently, like this week, buy a whole bunch of things for numerous nieces and nephews that I have because there's a lot of those little kids on the list and I got to take care of that, but nothing's been wrapped. So I I guess I did get a head start on my Christmas shopping. But this is what our hot question of the day is today. I know I didn't. Alan Regan, our producer, I'm sure is one of the most organized people out there because he's noting it is five weeks to Christmas. I'm sorry that he put that in there because that's just going to pressure some people out there, but it's five weeks to Christmas and we want to know, have you started your holiday shopping? yet? You know, I'm just going to ask Alan right now, Alan, have you actually started your Christmas shopping yet?
2: I actually can you hear me. I actually have because yes. I, as it happens was visiting uh, Ireland over the summer and rather than pay the postage for sending all my gifts back, I actually got them sorted back in May brought them with me when I went back to Ireland to visit my parents. All right. I'm sorry I even asked this
1: question. I'm sorry. Stop talking now. <laughs> I, he got his Christmas prop shopping done in May. What is that? Okay. So for our hot question of the day today, we want to know, have you started your holiday shopping yet? I'm not even going to ask our producer, Dwayne, because I know he's like a Christmas Eve kind of guy. I can just, I don't even need to ask him to know that he's the guy that you see in the mall. On, he just gave me the thumbs up on Christmas Eve, buying that last minute present. So So have you started your shopping yet? Yes, you have to be organized. No, what's the rush? Those are your choices. Let's hear it. And I know there'll be people out there who will say, well, you know, as I see things throughout the year, I have ants that are like that, right? You buy them something, you're like, wow, what season did you buy this in? Because it wasn't bought in the last couple of months. It's whenever you see something good, you think, oh, that would be a good Christmas present. I'll get them that. So have you started on this yet? let us know. Now you can call our buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ, but take a look online and cast your vote as well. Let us know if you're one of those super organized people or you are willing to just let this thing go and see what happens later on, see what you can get at the last minute. So it's at CKNW or at SimiSara980. And yes, you can also email me, simi at cknw.com. And I know a little bit of people who, who can't even believe we're talking about Christmas presents I did already buy my new gift tags. I, I'm i very picky about gift tags. I really love the super nice ones because I feel like it can make or break a present when you wrap them. So I do have my super duper gift tags already, but I haven't got the wrapping paper yet. And I haven't bought the industrial pack of scotch tape yet. So I haven't done any of that, but I have started making in- incremental advancements into the Christmas shopping season. How about you? Have you started yet? or not, let me know. Send me at cknw.com, call our buzz line, or check out what we have right there on our hot question of the day. If you go on Twitter, send me Sarah 980 or at cknw. How many times have we talked about this next situation? The fact that in years past, when ICBC was rolling in money, previous governments just helped themselves to that cash to balance their books. And now ICBC, as we all know, is a dumpster fire. It has been infuriating to so many British Columbians over the years watching that happen. But is that about to change for good with a law that would prevent this from happening again? Well, that's what it sounds like after reading Rob Shaw's story in The Vancouver Sun this morning. So let's talk to him about that. And he joins us now. Good morning, Rob. Hi, Simi. Okay, so what is it that you got the scoop on here?
3: Well, this has long been something that New Democrats have criticized. As you mentioned off the top, the fact that previous Liberal government kind of milked the golden cow of, of ICBC during profitable years and took the money away. And so Attorney General David Eby says that now that the new Democrats are in power, he's got legislation that he'll introduce in the spring that will forbid governments from taking money out of ICBC. Uh, I should note, you know, it is a law that will probably pass. It is a symbolic in a way, I guess, because, you know, no government can do anything here to bind future governments. So if the liberals came back into power and they didn't like this, they could pass another Motion in the House and repeal the legislation, but it's it's similar in some ways to Gordon Campbell had legislation in uh, that governments could not run deficits uh, when right. he was in power, and that was something that the Liberals had to repeal uh, to run a deficit later. So it's kind of one of those things that government sets in place it is not like a straitjacket, but it is a is something that would be very embarrassing uh, to to have to contradict your own legislation, and I don't think we'll see the NDP take any money out of ICBC should one day in the distant future, ICBC ever become profitable again.
1: Right. So the idea here would be to make it so politically unpalatable that nobody will do this. Yeah. And, you know,
3: it's an interesting argument. And I think when ICBC, um, you know, was created uh, in the 70s, there was this idea that if the government is going to get in the business of having a state monopoly on basic auto insurance, that the point of that is that you generate money uh, through that business and return the money to help operate the province, education, healthcare, uh, all of that type of thing. Otherwise, why is the government in the business of auto insurance at all, uh, other than to provide a fair playing field for people so they're not discriminated against and get some returns? We're sort of at the point now, though, where – you know government did that and they did it right up until the brink of ICBC becoming insolvent yeah. and they left ICBC you know from 2010 to 2016 the government took out more than a billion about a billion point 2 uh of profits from ICBC and when ICBC hit troubling times in 2017 they had no savings to fall back on they had no they had no money just sitting around uh and that became one of the reasons why ICBC has gone into a deficit so deeply, why it's $2.5 billion over the last two years in the whole that's required kind of provincial bailout. Uh, and I guess the argument is it would be great if you could take ICBC's returns for the budget and use it for healthcare and education, but at the same time, maybe we've learned that that's not the best way to do it because you never know when when a downturn is coming.
1: I like the way you said, maybe we've learned, because you never
3: know. (laughs) Well, you know, in politics, uh, learning is a very slow process.
1: It is. Now, there's another ICBC story, too, right, where another big change could potentially be coming. What is the big deal about online purchasing of your ICBC insurance?
3: Well, because everything is so, uh, you know, the dumpster fire is raging still at ICBC and is losing so much money. There are all these proposals to try and find ways to save costs. And one of the ideas is, um, why is it that if you want to go renew your auto insurance and you don't have any changes planned, you're just going in and getting a new decal for your car uh, every year, um, why do you have to go to an auto plan broker and sit down and wait in line and then go through the process and have them type everything on their keyboard Uh, for something that hasn't changed for you. Now, there are lots of circumstances where you are getting new insurance or you have a complicated insurance arrangement. You do need that help. But for people just renewing, why can't they go online and do it? And one of the arguments is maybe that could save ICBC money. They spent $490 million last year in commissions. The auto broker, when they go through the computer and renew your insurance, gets a percentage uh, commission, and that's not something you really notice because it's not your, it's not um, advertised in your face. But they get paid to help you renew your insurance. And what if ICBC could cut that four hundred ninety million dollars a year in commissions down by having you renew your insurance online when you can? And that's the argument. And then David Eby says government is interested in it and they're going to work on it.
1: Right, but I'm sure insurance brokers would not be happy about this. No, but
3: they're trying to put the best spin on I, I think what's going to happen here, and uh, talking to both the brokers yesterday and David Eby, is what's essentially going to happen is ICBC is going to develop a system where you can renew online, but to do it, you have to go to your local auto broker's website, and there'll be an ICBC tool. And the auto brokers are going to review your renewal uh, after you submit it online. Some actual auto broker in person will renew it on their end and authorize it, and they will get a reduced commission. So the idea you're, getting, you're cutting out the, the auto broker commission entirely is not accurate, I don't think, in the way that they've set this up, at least initially. And also, there's 6 million transactions a year from auto brokers and a whole bunch of them on commercial vehicles, complicated insurance. You know, have you ever been stuck in line to renew yep. your insurance behind someone who has like 47 questions about yes. their optional and what does this mean and what about Roadstar Plus and why am I not a gold? Those people will still want to go in person so those the bricks and mortar system will still be there, so it's not going to cut 490 million dollars in commission down to zero, but it might shave off, as David E.B. said, maybe a hundred million dollars plus. And I guess when your, every your fire counts. is raging in ICBC, it, it every bit counts. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay. So these changes you said what potentially coming next spring in legislation?
3: Mm, well, so the changes on banning <laughs> profits next spring. The changes on online renewals. We're not really sure he's committing to before the next election, 2021-ish, I guess, is kind of where they're hoping.
1: Right. OK, so it's in a busy legislative session so far, then, and it sounds like it's not going to end, particularly for David Eby.
3: No, no. I mean, he's got a lot of files on his plate. He's got ICBC money laundering, cannab- some parts of cannabis. He's got uh, all sorts of other things. But I think ICBC is occupying a lot of his time because, remember, ICBC lost a court case recently that is going to cost government $400 million this year. Right. The surplus this year is projected to be $179 million. So it, ICBC's losses swamp the budget, and it's a huge risk, and the finance minister has said we've got to stay on it. And so EB's, I would say, probably three-quarters of his time right now is occupied just on... ICBC and try to keep the losses from growing.
1: Now, do you think that's what changed here? Because I remember David Eby saying that, you know, yeah, we'll get to the online thing later. And now all of a sudden he's saying in the spring, do you think now they're thinking we have to squeeze every dollar where we can?
3: I think so, yeah. I mean, the, the, there is another court challenge uh, against the, the cap on minor injury, pain, and suffering claims $5,500. If ICBC loses that course case as well, they're going to they're going to be hit with a billion dollar uh, billion dollars in savings that they were hoping to get that would be overturned. So I think the new Democrats are hedging their bets that they got to prepare for the worst case scenario. They got to start chipping away at little corners because these big court cases they're up against don't always turn out in their favor. And that's why you suddenly see something that, like, look, this is going to take a lot of work. ICBC is going to have to develop a, an IT system yeah. to online renew your insurance. And you, know, you and I both know from watching government for a while, they can never no. produce a computer system that works. So no one wants to go down that route. But they think that maybe even if they do, they could still save a little bit of money. And at this point, they're, they're hoping it's worth the risk.
1: All right, Rob, thanks so much for explaining it to us.
3: Okay, take care.
1: You too. That's Rob Shaw, legislative correspondent for the Vancouver Sun. Check out his piece today.
4: All these people are talking about, they heard a conversation of a conversation of another conversation that was had by the president. What's going on is a disgrace. That is
1: U.S. President Donald Trump. And one thing is for sure, he is definitely watching the impeachment hearings against him. As you heard him just say there, he believed it, the proceedings are a disgrace. He called them a kangaroo court. Today, there have been more people testifying at those hearings, including a National Security Council aide and Jennifer Williams, who's an aide to Vice President Mike Pence. Let's find out more now about what it is that these witnesses had to say. Joining us is Reggie Cicchini, our global news radio producer in Washington. Hi, Reggie. Hello. All right. Let's start with the National Security Council aide. Who is this and what did he have to say?
2: Uh, this would have been Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vinman, and uh, he was uh, testifying originally saying that he was on that phone call with the president and President Zelensky. What he heard the president ask when it came for this request of an investigation uh, to potentially further his own political uh, operation uh, was improper, and he felt alarmed by it and felt concerned by this. And this is what Democrats were hoping for. They wanted to talk to somebody who had firsthand knowledge of this phone call in order to kind of qualify those complaints from Republicans that this was all hearsay and second and third hand information. Democrats got what they wanted. Republicans on the other hand simply tried to discredit at times uh, this decorated war hero who was testifying before them
1: And what exactly did he hear and and what did he say about that?
2: Well, he heard the president's request for, uh, you know, an investigation. He heard the president talking about the Biden family. He heard the president say, you know, we need you to look into this. And he said that that was an inappropriate position for the president uh, to be taking because, quote, it's improper for the president of the United States to demand a foreign government investigate a U.S. citizen and a political opponent and said that this does nothing to kind of uh, bolster U.S. national security. And in fact, it could put it at risk and ultimately that this had nothing to do with kind of ending any kind of corruption that was ongoing within the country that the president was supposed to be tackling. So he felt that he had a duty out of his commitment and years of service to the United States to protect U.S. national interest. And he went forward with this complaint.
1: Right. And this isn't the whistleblower.
2: This is not the whistleblower. And in fact, at a number of times today, the Republicans tried to out who the whistleblower was by asking uh, Colonel Vinman if he was in conversation with somebody, if he talked to somebody else, if he leaked to the press, if this and if that. Uh, And it was shut down very abruptly by uh, the Democrats who were trying to say, look, this is not what we're going to do. We're not going to out this whistleblower.
1: Okay, so that was one person. The other person is Jennifer Williams, an aide to Vice President Mike Pence. What did she have to say?
2: Well, she says, uh, you know, she testified that, you know, on the 25th, uh, July 25th, she found the phone call, quote, unusual, uh, because she said that she has been on dozens of presidential phone calls and, quote, this involved discussion of what appeared to be a domestic political matter, kind of echoing what, uh, Vinman had said by saying, look, this is something that has nothing to do with bettering and enforcing and enhancing, uh, foreign policy between the United States and Ukraine. It doesn't do anything to end any kind of corruption in the country. This simply appeared to be something that was going to benefit donald trump personally so she says that she was alarmed by it now in difference and in contrast to what uh, colonel vindman did she simply wrote it down in briefing notes that she then gave to the vice president but couldn't be sure if the vice president actually went and read those notes that she gave him
1: okay that's another question then if this is an aid to vice president mike pence does this put him in an awkward position
2: well, look, my the Vice President has kind of been connected to slash not connected to this controversy since it started up, and his name has come up every once in a while, and there has been hesitance at, and reluctance on the part of the President and the Vice President's office to offer any other kind of information. We know that the Vice President was pulled back at the last minute from attending the inauguration of President Zelensky uh, back in uh, May or June at the President's request. Uh, there was no real reason given for that, and and the kind of that three amigos. Of Rick Perry uh, was sent instead. So there are questions as to what Vice President Pence has said to Zelensky in the past. And in fact, Jennifer Williams' legal counsel today uh, invoked executive privilege or at least uh, privilege on the conversation that Pence has had with Zelensky.
1: Is it possible that he may also be called to testify?
2: Uh, Look, it is possible. I can't imagine that he will because the White House and the administration has been, uh, you know, very strong handed in their efforts to uh, make sure that people are not able to come and testify before Congress. You know, if the president isn't willing to uh, appear in person, I can't imagine that the vice president is going to be, you know, jumping up and raising his hand to come and talk.
1: Right. And clearly also from what we heard there, Reggie, of the president coming into this uh, interview with you is that it sounds like somebody who is increasingly quite angry about this whole process.
2: Well, look, the president has been angry about this process since it started back in September, and it was kind of continued anger from what he perceived to be democratic attacks ever since the Robert Mueller investigation had started up, you know, years ago. But he believes these people that are testifying to be, quote-unquote, never-Trumpers, even though today both uh, witnesses said, look, we're not never-Trumpers, and in fact, Colonel Vinman said that he's never partisan, uh, but the president sees these people as being not loyal to him and, and going against what his right. policy directives should be— and And that's where this anger comes from.
1: Okay, so what happens now?
2: Well, we have two more uh, sets of testimony to come this afternoon, and that is going to be from members that were actually on the Republican list. Kurt Volker uh, is one of them. Another person who was on the call would be Tim Morrison. Uh, this is just going to provide more context to that phone call that the president had. Republicans, again, trying to push their narrative that the president did nothing wrong. Tomorrow is when Gordon Sondland is going to testify. That is going to be a big day. It'll be uh, interesting to see if Democrats can keep their questions in line. If Gordon Sondland decides to do something like plead the fifth, because there could be some kind of criminal connection uh, between what he and the president had to talk about on the phone one day. So this could be our kind of big first day of fireworks of testimony tomorrow.
1: I guess we'll be talking to you then. Reggie, thank you so much. Anytime. That is Reggie Cicchini, our global news radio producer in Washington, D.C., bringing us up to date on the testimony that has been happening there today in regards to the impeachment hearings. Could there be a showdown shaping up between the city of Surrey and the people who are living at a homeless encampment? There is a group that says they are afraid that if they don't go into some newly found shelter space, that they could be evicted from the campsite where they are right now. They're living in a wooded area off of King George Boulevard in North Surrey. It's known as as the sanctuary and they say they won't let the city use the opening of a new shelter as an excuse to shut down their homeless camp let's find out more about this story now with the help of global news senior reporter janet brown hi janet
5: Good morning, Simi. Yeah. Will there be a showdown between the city and this homeless encampment? This homeless encampment has been set up on the King George Highway. Uh, you can see it as you drive along. It's right under the SkyTrain tracks. They have been there since June of this year. So they're very embedded in that area. And as time goes on, just like in the city of Vancouver at Oppenheimer Park, it becomes a community for the homeless people. But the city of uh, Surrey is thrilled that they have been able to find uh, an empty building that they are leasing to put about 42 people inside to get them off the streets during the cold months that are coming up. But there's some people at the sanctuary campsite who say they don't want to go into shelter space, Simi, because they've had, you know, for a variety of reasons, bad experiences, they can't bring their pets, they can't bring their belongings, whatever the reason is, they don't want to go inside. Now, Those people are afraid that if they don't move away from the encampment, get out of there, uh, that the city bylaws folks will come in and remove them. Here is their spokesperson, Dave Dewert.
4: What we're saying is the options are for people to stay where they are and uh, endure the rats in the rain. Uh, or come into a shelter where many people who are living in this wooded area have experienced shelters before, and they've been places of loss, they've been places of trauma, of uh, of violence. Um, they're just not wanting to go back into a situation where they have to share a room and a bunk with uh, 40 other people under a certain amount of like rules and regulations that um mean that at any moment they might be evicted from there in any case and back on the street. So this is like a non-solution. I think this is meant to just remove people from this particular site. I'm not quite sure why the, uh, the impetus for that right now. Um, plus the 42 beds are simply not, uh, adequate for the need. There are, uh, dozens and dozens and dozens of people, um, in the Wally area who can't get into shelters are, don't have a place in the mods. Um, and are just trying to survive uh, in any place that they are able to.
1: So then, Janet, what is it that would help them? Like, what are they looking for?
5: They are looking, at least some of them, Simi, to stay put. They are happy where they are at this encampment. Now, I, I reached out to Councillor Brenda Locke and I asked her, are these folks going to be forced to get on their way, uh, you know, either into the shelter or someplace else? And she said, definitely not, because, of course, the bylaws, people take their direction from the city of Surrey. And uh, Ms. Locke is confident that they will be able to, to decide whether they want to go into the shelter space or stay put. Here's more of what she has to say.
6: You know, um outreach workers have already been on the ground talking to them, outreach workers from Lookout and from Surrey European Mission and Options, and many of them are already saying they want to come in. Uh, but nobody will be forced, as far as I know, nobody will be forced to come in.
5: They feel like they will be forced and that the encampment will be shut down by bylaws, and as far as
6: you know that, that that's not going to happen then? That's not uh, what I understand. What I understand, they're going to try and get the people that want to move in, moved in first. There's only a limited number of beds there anyways, and I can tell you every shelter bed in this city is full right now.
5: How many people are at the sanctuary
6: right now? Do you know? Have you been down there? Uh, I haven't been down there, but I do go to the outreach team meeting, and uh, it's it uh, varies, but it's about 45 to 55 people. So clearly more people than the, than
5: this new shelter will be able to house by the sounds of yeah, it.
6: Yeah, that's right. And um, one of the challenges, that, sh- that camp has been there since June. So there are huge challenges uh, right now with sanitation and water and a number of things.
1: So then, Janet, if people want to stay down there, what about the cold weather? Are there any concerns about that?
5: There certainly are. As we know, in previous years, Simi, you know, when the colder weather moves in, sometimes the people who decide to stay outside uh, bring in p- propane heaters to try and keep warm. And that poses another safety risk and involves the Surrey Fire Department. So they're really concerned about that aspect of this. So uh, whether they get to stay put, I-, I think time will tell because there are a number of sites around the city of Surrey that have been cleared out because people have moved in and decided to camp there, but it is private property. And then when the owners decide to sell it, well, you know, there is a problem. They have to move on uh, so that the property can be cleaned up and developed and sold, etc., etc. So, and you know, Mr. Dewert was telling me, Simi, this is really interesting. He told me he believes there are at least 95 encampments in the city of Surrey. That many? Now, some of those encampments... That many, he he figures. I reached out to the bylaws department to say, well, how many people, how many encampments do you think there are in the city? They they say, you know, they're checking into it. And Mr. Dewert's, um, you know, he he may think that one person could be an encampment, but regardless, he says there's over ninety in the city of Surrey. And we heard from Brenda Locke, all the housing, all the shelters are at max. There are not enough shelter spaces in the city of Surrey. So what are people supposed to do? You know, there is more coming online. There is one being built in the green timbers area uh, near RCMP E division. Mm -hmm. But even when that is up and running, that still doesn't provide enough shelter space for the folks that are homeless. And as we heard, there's some people that don't want to go in shelter space either, Simi.
1: Right, because of the type of shelter we're talking about. Like, I remember when you did those previous stories, Janet, about the modular housing, right? Where people have their own Mm -hmm. units. Is that more acceptable to people, do you think?
5: Well, there again, Simi, it depends who you talk to. Uh, mm-hmm. Most of the people I talk to, they love living in that modular housing. They love it. There is heat, there is air conditioning in the summer, uh, there are meals, there are support services around, but other people don't like going in there because they say it's cramped, it's crowded, et cetera, et cetera. So it really depends who you talk to. But you know, it's interesting when you bring up the modular housing issue, uh, the life of those is coming to an end because the city leased the property they're on And it expires the lease next summer. So once again, all the people living in those modular housing units in Wally will have to be put into other housing. And there's about 150 people in that modular housing. So that's going to present another problem. Uh, But right now, uh, you know, it's more of an urgent problem getting these people into housing who are sleeping outside, want to go inside to avoid the cold weather. So we'll see what happens here in the city of Surrey, whether people will be able to stay in the sanctuary or if they're going to be cleared out. Who knows?
1: Uh, All right, Janet, thank you so much. Thank you. That's Janet Brown, our Global News senior reporter, who's covering the story of the homeless situation in Surrey. You know, I remember driving down Broadway in Vancouver. Oh. 18 years ago, I guess, coming to a stop at a red light at Granville. And then I looked over to my right, and there I saw something that I hadn't seen before. It was a new restaurant. It was a barbecue restaurant. That I thought I have got to try. I did, and many, many times, it turns out, over the years. But it's soon going to be the end of an era for Memphis Blues and their first original location at Granville and Broadway because of construction on the new subway line. And it leaves this longtime business in total limbo and without a whole lot of help for businesses that are being disrupted by this construction. You think we would have learned this lesson after what happened with the Canada line on Cambie Street, but let's hear more about this now because joining us is George Sue, co-owner of Memphis Blues. Hi. How are you? I'm good, but better than you guys. What happened? Well...
7: I guess it's called Progress, and they're going to put a station exactly where our building is. Right. Now, we heard rumblings a couple years ago, and we thought, okay, they're just going to take over the corner, which is the Royal Bank building.
1: Right. That's what I thought, too.
7: Everybody thought that. And we were kept in the dark, and suddenly, within the last eight months, all of a sudden, it's like, no, 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 they're probably going to slide over and take that building instead instead of putting the station right at the corner, they're going to move it.
1: In. A little bit off the corner. Yeah.
7: And I thought, okay, so we've been going month to month for the last year because of that. We've been looking. And you know what? It's it's a tough slog trying to get a good space in Vancouver. Rents are just atrocious. Property values. Yeah. I mean, if everybody, if you have a triple net lease, your triple net portion is probably more than your lease sometimes.
1: But if you're being displaced by a project such as this, Is there not any program or any city thing that helps businesses who are stuck like this?
7: Well, you would think so, but I mean, I'm looking at the Canby uh, uh, merchants and I think history might repeat itself. All I'm asking for is a fair shake. I'm not looking for a pity or anything else. We've had a good run. It's a great location, but I thought, look, if you're going to pick me up and move me, at least cover my costs because that's only fair. Right. And with a project this size, with all that funding, all the budgets, you think they would have learned from Canby and thought, okay, we got to budget X amount because all these merchants are going to be displaced.
1: Longtime merchants like that street yeah. has been fairly stable.
7: I mean, my neighbor uh, Fortune Garden has been there thirty-five years. Really? And they're like,
1: and the art go. store is there, and there's a number of other businesses right there.
7: Um, but the thing is, they're just taking our building and the Royal Bank, and then here's what I have seen, they're going to take over the art store and another site east of that or west of that. And they're going to demo the buildings. And, but that's going to be their site where they, the construction site, and they do all the prep and everything and they're going to fence it off. And so all, all
1: that whole block is going to be changed by this. Now, like yeah. we expect some change, obviously, because it's yeah, not a I'm, small I'm good thing to build this. Right. But in order for you to move, what does that do to your business?
7: Well, first of all, we'd like to stay in the area because we've had so many, as yourself, long-time customers, like long time. I mean, we have a great history. But I mean, by displacing us, I mean, think of all my suppliers, all my staff. It's just a trickle-down effect. Right. So we'd like to stay in that area because a lot of my regulars are like, oh, my God, what are you doing? You can't move. And it's tough slog on, on that site. I know you want me to move next to your house. I but, would try yeah. to get to move
1: down <laughs> the street to my neighborhood. That'd be really handy for me. But what kind of cost do you incur for something like this? Like your business, I mean, obviously you got a lot of smokers, you got a lot of equipment. What is something like this going to cost?
7: Well, what we're looking for is an existing restaurant about the same size Yeah. so that we can go in there and renovate. Now, if you were starting from f- scratch, I think we're probably thinking, no, that I don't think I want to do that because A, permitting is crazy uh the city should help out by expediting the permits for all the merchants that are relocating
1: yeah
7: uh, quicker so that are we can doing get up on any their of ring. that everybody gives me the standard answer of well, you know wait and see i don't know what you're waiting and seeing about you've known this going down for years just like we did so we're planning but Where's your planning?
1: So, the, yeah, there's no plan then on the part of the city of Vancouver to yeah. come in and say, we can help you. Here's a program or here's anything like that.
7: We've asked uh, if they're going to compensate us. And if, they're, if they are, what's the criteria? What do I got to do? Like, what kind of hoops do I have to jump through? I mean, you're coming in and just saying, hey, after 18, 20 years, you're gone. But if, but I need to rebuild It's like moving your house. Somebody just says, we're taking
1: this space and you need to move and it's all on you. Yeah. But at least
7: they would give you money and say, Hey, move over here or do this. But I don't know why they don't do that with businesses. I mean, I guess you can talk to like a hundred merchants from Canby from 10 years ago.
1: Well, and there was a lawsuit. I seem to remember from that as well, but that took forever to wind its way through the courts. So then what do you, for other businesses like fortune garden for Memphis blues, what's going to happen?
7: We're looking, we want to rebuild. I mean, that store started everything. Uh, it's our baby. Park and I built that thing.
1: <laughs> yeah, you did. You took a lot of trips. I remember down south to try to figure out yeah. what you wanted, and and,
7: and you know, uh, all, and I've had a lot of long term uh, time staff, and uh, it's hard to let them go. But I told them like, we'll try to place you in other locations, and then when we reopen, please come back. And you know what? When the courier uh, story broke yesterday. It, my phone blew up with all these people that came out of nowhere that I, you know, long-time employees, past employees, and they said how sore it was. I mean, I think it was summed up by somebody saying, you know, lots of friendships, lots of relationships, lots of babies, marriages, yeah. it all, lots of laughs. 18, it all went years. down at Memphis. And, A lot of them came to us when they were in their late teens, early 20s. And now they have careers in their 30s. You know, it was a good time.
1: But don't say that in the past tense, though, because you do want to make something happen in a new location. But this also highlights how difficult it is, I think, for a lot of businesses mm -hmm. these days. And that was something you also touched on is that it's really hard these days for business owners.
7: Absolutely. I mean, rent is a huge issue. Then you also have labor. And, you know, everybody's minimum wage is going up. And I'm all for it. I, I honestly am. But the general public that is also all for it have to realize you your, for that. your bill yeah. is going up because it has to come from somewhere. I mean, right. you want to pay somebody 20 bucks an hour? Great. Your coffee's going to cost you eight bucks. Well, oh, well. I mean, I'm just, you know, that's a, a quick analogy, but I'm just right. saying. But
1: for some things, obviously people are willing to pay more because people were still coming into the restaurant. So that was happening. But what about like relocation costs and property taxes for businesses? What, what has all that been like?
7: Well, I mean, even the location we're in, it's terrible because the rent is less than the triple net portion because of his property taxes that gets passed on to your tenant, yeah. insurance costs, et cetera, et cetera. And, and anybody that runs a business knows that. And I think this city is getting to a point where you might see a talent drain in, the, in this industry because chefs and young and upcoming guys might think, well, forget it, I can go to New West, I can go to Burnaby, I can go to, you know... Go to Surrey, it,
1: it, go somewhere else, yeah.
7: It started happening in New York about eight years ago. They
5: all went Manhattan. to Manhattan, yeah. they went
7: to Brooklyn, Long Island. It's going to happen because you're being squeezed out. And once that new building's built, everybody says, well, you can go back. Well, not with the rent they're going to charge, number one. Number yeah. two, when you have these new buildings, they're just going to go after, you know, Starbucks and, you know, the usual. The big
1: retailers that can pay the price, but then there's a million of those places.
7: You're homogenizing the city. It's all going to be the same.
1: Well, this is so sad. So, what is your timeline like for finding a new place? Or are you going to take your time and find a new location?
7: Well, we want to do a little bit of both. You know, I want it to uh, take three, four months and really, you know, look at places, but right. nothing's out there that kind of fits our criteria. Needs, yeah. Right? I mean, there are places that are four times the size and you know that would just totally, it's not going to work we want something a little smaller just like what we did with commercial drive put in a little bar, it's fantastic we have table service at the commercial drive location and it's worked extremely well and I I think I want to keep it small because it still needs to be intimate, I have so many regulars that come in and it's like they like that
1: so how much time do you have? January that's it?
7: the end of January But they don't realize that it's not like packing up your apartment and leaving. Yeah. I mean, we probably have to shut down and just tear it all out and get my gear out and all that. That's
1: really fast. Yeah. So So if people want to help out, if they have a suggestion for a location, anything, George, where can they find you?
7: uh, Info at MemphisBluesBBQ.com. We're open to looking at some spaces. And, uh, you know, we need something about 15, 1,600 square feet. That's another thing that is hard because of the size of the restaurant. Yeah. You know?
1: You don't want it too big. You don't want it too small. Yeah. You need something yeah. just right in the middle there. Yeah. Well, if you know something that can help them out, please let them know. But these, I, th- I have a feeling we're going to be talking more about stories like this as <laughs> construction really does ramp up.
7: Especially in where they, they want to put a station. Yeah. Because you're gone.
1: And there's going to be a lot of those along Broadway. So yeah. we will be talking more about this, George. Thank you.
7: Thank you. But until January twentieth, please come get your barbecue at
1: Broadway. You know I will. I'll <laughs> be there as soon as I can. That's George Sue Corner of Memphis Blues. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. Their story has become all too common for so many parents right across the country, but particularly here in British Columbia, when you lose a loved one or a child to an overdose. That's what happened to John Hedekin. He lost his son to fentanyl in 2017, but he's approached this in a different way in a couple of years since then. He is now asking the BC Coroner Service to change the way deaths such as his son's are labeled. He doesn't want them to be labeled as overdose deaths. He wants them to be called poisoning deaths. Have a listen to this report from our Claire Allen. <laughs>
3: Illicit drugs continue to kill three people a day in B.C.
8: Deaths are primarily affecting men in the prime of their life.
2: The numbers for 2018 are staggering. 1,489 people died this year of a drug overdose.
3: This isn't like when I was in school and the police were saying, kids don't use drugs that might lead to a life of crime or poor decision making. What we're saying is one time could be fatal.
0: Our province is in the midst of an overdose crisis. According to the BC Coroner's Service, so far in 2019, 584 people have died of a drug overdose in which fentanyl was present. Those statistics have become all too familiar to John Hedekin and his family. Hedekin's son, Ryan, was among the 8 million people in Canada suffering from addiction. This is a story about a young man battling addiction, his family that supported him, and how they're using their experience to work to change the way the government deals with the issue of addiction.
9: Ryan is the oldest of our three children. He was an adventurous little guy, typical of lots of little boys. Growing up, he loved sports. He did well in school. He played hockey at a high level. He was our family IT guy. You know, he graduated high school and thought uh, business would interest him, and he got a business diploma at North Island College here in the Comox Valley, and that didn't uh, keep his interest. So he tried the electrical field, and he went to North Island College in Campbell River and completed his uh, electrical training and started uh, down the electrician path. Like, you know, all teenagers hit those years where they're not always under their parents' watch. And natural for kids to try alcohol and other substances, and Ryan was just like other kids. You know, what age that would have been, you know, it was 14, 15, 16 that Ryan started to do that, but it was still at a limited basis because he was up early with rep hockey practices. Ryan was like his mom. Alcohol didn't sit well in his stomach, and he switched from alcohol to marijuana, and you know, I think that between alcohol and marijuana, it, it led... Ryan trying other substances, he ended up being addicted to heroin.
0: When Ryan was 23 years old, his family found out about his addiction. Hedekin acted swiftly to get his son into treatment.
9: Ryan went into a recovery facility in Nanaimo called Edgewood at a cost of $13,000 a month. Ryan did the an eight week program. He did the eight week program, and he came out and he got a job as an electrician on the new Campbell River hospital being built. And Ryan relapsed shortly out of Edgewood which they told us there was a 92% chance he would relapse. Only 8% normally don't relapse. So for $13,000 a month, we were basically told that um, there's no hope.
0: After his relapse, Hedekin and his family lost contact with Ryan for approximately six months.
9: It was terrifying. And then he reached out to us and asked for help, and we were able to get him into a facility in, in New Westminster called The Last Door.
0: Before Ryan could enter the second recovery program, he had to wait until after the weekend.
9: He called us on a Friday night, and recovery facilities don't do intake on weekends, so we had to wait till Monday before we were able to get him into a facility. And there's no detox available in the Comox Valley, so I had to drive around the valley for two days Buying my son heroin, not knowing if it was going to kill him uh, before I could get him into recovery on the Monday. And uh, it was surreal uh, doing that.
0: After spending eight months at the Last Door Recovery Center, Ryan graduated from the program and began living his life free from addiction. Despite his success, Ryan felt a lot of shame about the toll his addiction had taken on his family.
9: Ryan felt such guilt for the cost of these facilities that he asked us to adjust our wills so his brother and sister didn't have to pay for his expenses.
0: Ryan returned to work on a construction site, this time in Vancouver. He had eight months sobriety, and his family thought he was looking forward to the future. But that all changed on April twenty fourth 2017.
9: I was at work. I had the RCMP come to my workplace and... Uh, to inform me that Ryan had died on his job site. And um, that's all they could tell me.
0: Ryan died after smoking heroin laced with fentanyl while on a break at work. He was 26 years old.
9: Found out where he had been sent. His body had been sent. Uh, They couldn't tell us anything. And because of the number of people dying... um, They were backlogged. All they could say is because your son has been sent to this particular funeral home, that tells us that it was drug-related, and it was a week before we were able to get our son back to the Comox Valley because of the backlog and fentanyl deaths. You know, you can't move on in life because it happens every day. And it's been happening every day since Ryan died. So how how do you try and move forward in life? You can't.
0: In July, the BC Coroner's Service changed the terminology it uses to label a death such as Ryan's. They are now described as accidental, caused by an unintentional illicit drug overdose. However, Hedekin would like the word overdose to no longer be used at all to describe a death like his son's.
9: I want that document to say that it was a drug death to toxicity. I don't want the word overdose on his report because he didn't overdose. He was poisoned with a toxic drug and it needs to say what has happened it's no longer an overdose it's a death to toxicity and the correct language needs to be on our son's report and that's why we've asked them to do it and that's why I've sent out letters trying to get media there was a, an article in our local paper and it was you know there was 55 overdose deaths in the Comox Valley uh, since 2016, and I sent a letter to the editor saying, please change your language and how you report you know, on this crisis. It's not overdose, it's people are being poisoned, and we have to call it what it is, and we have to address it for what it is.
0: It may seem like an issue of semantics, but to Hedekin, he believes that the word overdose works to further stigmatize people and the family of people who struggle with substance abuse. Hedican applied that same logic when writing his son's obituary.
9: We said Ryan died battling the disease of addiction. We've always been open. I'm not ashamed of Ryan and in his addiction. He um, he didn't want it in his life. He fought so hard. <sighs> but I do know so many people that haven't been able to put it in the obituary because they're ashamed and it's so wrong. Or they say he died suddenly, and it didn't die suddenly. It was poisoned, or he fought the disease for so long, and and we can put died fighting cancer bravely, but we just can't put it in for, for substance users.
0: Hedekin and his family are calling on the federal government to step in and stop the toxic supply of illicit drugs.
9: Our federal government needs to acknowledge that the prohibition of drugs is no more realistic than the prohibition of alcohol or marijuana and we need to provide a clean source of regulated substances like we do for alcohol and marijuana we need to get organized crime out of our neighborhoods stop the drive-by shootings quit wasting the billions of tax dollars and acknowledge that drugs are part of life we can't keep drugs out of prison and they think they're going to keep them off the streets. like it's we have over 50 years of evidence of the failed war on drugs. It's because it's a war against ourselves. People use drugs. So let's, let's acknowledge it. Let's stop people from dying and, and support it. Our family is very close. The things that mean the most to us in life are being together. So all the dates that we had in our calendar, birthdays, Mother's Day, Father's Day, anniversaries, Christmas, Thanksgiving, those were all dates when we got together um, to be with each other. And those dates now are all dates to grieve. And um, it's, uh, it's something that we, we all know when we get together getting together as a foursome not a fivesome and we look forward to things that we plan to get together and then when that day comes it changes because we know there's somebody not here with us and it's um in some ways i'm i'm glad i'm turning 60 because i've you know i'm gonna have 20 plus years i hope of this but i couldn't imagine um Oh, my kids have got so many more years. This is going to be in front of them.
0: For AM 980, CKNW,
1: I'm Claire Allen. Man, what a story. Oh, that poor family. And so many families have gone through that. And as you heard, John Hedekin would like the bc coroner service to change the way deaths such as his sons are labeled rather than calling them an overdose he thinks that they should be called a poisoning You know, we've been hearing about protests in Iran over the last week or so. Maybe you haven't actually heard about this very much or been paying attention to that story because of everything else that's going on in the world. And honestly, the news here is very much dominated by protests in Hong Kong as well. They are, though, having a big impact on people here who have family, relatives, friends, Back in Iran, and it's become increasingly difficult for those residents here to contact their friends and family and just find out if they're okay. In that country now, the government has shut down internet access. That's across the country. It's 80 million people. And that is in their effort to try to crack down on these demonstrations that have been taking place in reportedly something like 100 cities and towns. Last Friday, even, the Iranian government announced that it was going to ration fuel, and that has caused prices there to soar by 50 percent. That sparked widespread protests, but it's this decision to shut down the internet that has really concerned the friends and relatives here in Canada, particularly those who are here in Vancouver. And we're going to talk to somebody now. Leah Falla is with us, who lives in Vancouver, has family in Iran. Uh, Leah is a Miss Vancouver 2017, a theatre performance student at Simon Fraser University. Leah, thanks for being with you with us.
8: Hi, thank you so much for having me. Now, when did you leave Iran? I left Iran in 2011, in j- January.
1: Okay, and you've still got family,
8: friends back there? Yes, absolutely. It's just my, I have a lot of relatives. I have a lot of family still living in Iran. I would say my family is the only people who are here besides one of my other uncles. And I still have nine more living there, <laughs> nine, right. ten more. Yeah. So when
1: did you realize that it was becoming difficult to contact them?
8: So I usually keep contact with our relatives like on a daily basis and um, it was first on Instagram that I started seeing some videos about protests happening and sometimes you don't really believe it until you actually try for yourself and there was this I thought it was a rumor saying that the internet is completely banned and I tried to contact my uh, relatives, my aunt in Neuron and I noticed that my not only my messages but my calls were going through and it was really concerning because then immediately after that um, we started seeing all these news about a lot of people dying, a lot of people being killed, and it's so um, overwhelming and it's so frustrating and stressful to not know what's happening to my relatives, to my people, who is actually dying. We don't have any uh, specific number, and the, what we hear from the online sources is not something that we can definitely rely on just because the Internet is be- being banned and right. only a certain information is being passed on. So it's just been a really um, difficult time for sure.
1: Is Has this ever happened before where you've had this kind of trouble contacting family and friends?
8: Um, I wouldn't say that the internet was ever completely banned across the country. There might have been some issues in terms of the internet not having good quality or anything, but um, it, the internet has always been active and there. And um, and this is just the, one of the biggest reasons why it is so concerning is because um the people's voices are not being heard. And the, and the families and people who are living outside of the country, they can't contact their children or their relatives to see what's happening to them or if they're okay, if they're uh, safe even. So that's just been really uh, stressful for sure, yeah. I can imagine. So what,
1: from what you understand, like what has been happening? Have you been able to hear anything?
8: Yeah, there there are some um, news being um, passed on, which is great. Um, And from what I gather, is a lot of people after the fuel gas was super expensive and it went up by a lot, like it was just very crazy. A lot of people got on the streets and they started to chant about uh, how tired they are and how this is so unfair. They started to chant about their freedom and. and it wasn't really, like I would say, it really started to escalate when the cops and the police got involved and when the people were peacefully protesting, They what they had to face was violence and being beaten up and um even being shot like it's like some of the messages i've been hearing and getting from people is that some people uh, some of the uh, cops actually they get on the streets and they just start shooting people like they don't even care it's it, they don't even it's just like if there's a crowd they just start shooting right. and it's that's why we don't have an exact number of how many people are actually dead and it's
1: yeah. It's tough for you, though, too, isn't it, to even talk about this?
8: Absolutely. Like, every time, like, I haven't been able to sleep. Every time I talk about this, it's just so hard to not let it emotionally affect you. Um, I would say, any Persian, any Iranians living outside of the country and even in the country. It's, it defi- it's definitely a really hard time, I would say, for ev- all of us. Uh, this is something that is involving everyone. Not only the people of Iran's voices are not being heard, not only their information is not being passed on to us, but it's also, uh, this is a way for our voices from here to not, our support to not be... Portrayed or to to be seen by people of Iran so that they can see how much we are supporting this and that we it's a, it this is our responsibility I, f- I feel like this is my responsibility this is every Iranian's responsibility to be the voice for them and to uh, to talk about right. this and the world to be able to support this as a, as a united. Um, Right uh, nation, I would say, yeah.
1: Do you feel, it, like, are these protests getting enough attention? Because I feel like a lot of people don't know what's happening there.
8: Exactly, and this is why it's so frustrating here um, because I feel like, uh, again, like, we need a lot of media attention. We need a lot of people to be talking about this, and by us, like, and people, I don't mean just the Persians. I, I'm asking everyone in, the, in Vancouver, I'm asking everyone across the country here, I'm asking everyone everyone in the entire world to be talking about this this the matter of this is even I would say even or not not if not higher but maybe on the same level as the climate change for me because it is affecting everyone and what we do right now is going to affect the future so it's so important how we talk about this it's so important how we put it out there
1: what are you going to be doing I know you would like to raise some more awareness of this what would you like to see
8: Yes, absolutely. So on Thursday, uh, there's actually I have uh, created a Facebook group called Support Iran. And it is a public page. Uh, You can just look up Support Iran or my name and you can actually access the event. It's written in both English and Farsi. And we are getting together hopefully on Saturday at 11 a.m. The location is to be decided, so I will be posting it on the events page, but hopefully on Saturday at 11 o'clock, we can all come together and uh, be the voice of these people. Um, it doesn't, we don't fall under any, like I personally, or this group that I'm organizing doesn't fall under any, uh, political party. This is just to talk about the human rights and people's freedom and their, um, and their voice to be heard.
1: Right. Okay. So it is, has any country really responded at this point? Have you heard any kind of uh, country kind of come to the defense of people there? Um,
8: I have heard about uh, France and Germany, I believe. And uh, this is just something I read on Facebook and I don't know how much truth there is to it but it said that uh france and germany are able to actually um make internet available for iran and and that's why i'm i'm a little bit concerned i'm like so why hasn't anything happened yet like where are these people and um another thing that was uh that just to go back a little bit i contacted one of my friends i have to call them through direct line um And I was talking to her, she's one of my best friends, and when I asked her how she was doing, she didn't share anything with me. And she slowly whispered on the phone that she can't talk about it because their phones are being monitored in Iran. So even that's really heartbreaking.
1: Is there any way to get word out, though, like through neighboring countries or anything like that?
8: Um, well, uh, one of the pages that I've been following is Masih Ali and she, is, um, she lives in uh, the States, and she's the one who's actually been getting a lot of messages, because some people in Iran have been able to find some way around the Internet and like been able to send their videos directly to her, right. because she is, um, she's a very uh, well-known activist and um, and it is her page that I've been following, and it is her interviews that I've been following Ooh. to really get a sense of what's actually going on.
1: Okay, so you, I know you said you would like to raise some more awareness. What are you planning to do, Mint? Just let people know one more time?
8: Yes, on Saturday, we are getting together. The location is to be decided, and it will be posted on the Facebook group called uh, Support Iran, and it is a public page, and we are hoping to get together, bring hands and hearts together, and just be the voice for these people of Iran and their freedom.
1: All right, Leah, thank you very much for talking to us about this today.
8: Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time and having me.
1: That is Leah Fala. She lives in Vancouver. She has family, as you heard, quite a few family members back in Iran, and they are concerned. She and her family here are very concerned after the government in Iran shut down internet access right across that country. So we're talking 80 million people shut off from the internet as they have been trying to kind of crack down on the demonstrations that have been taking place in something like 100 cities in towns across that country. Today, we want to talk about what has become known as the most mysterious song on the internet. Like, I'm sure you know of song that you hear, that you know, but you just, you don't know who sings it. It's probably always bugged you that you're like, where's the song? I don't know what the band is, but I've always like known the words to it. Think about that, but on a much larger scale. Joining us now is our contributor, Claire Allen. Hi, Claire. Hey, Simi. You have a song like this in your head, right? I do, but I think I know
0: who it's by. And to be honest, it was a long time ago, so I can't really remember what sparked my interest in the song. But yeah, my dad and I, we would drive around and do errands and stuff. And he would always, uh, he won't let me listen to my, any music I like in the car. <laughs> Only his music.
4: Well, Your and dad so from, is pretty demanding. From yes. a
0: certain jo- uh, time. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and so the song came on and I'm pretty sure it was by Garnet Mims. But you don't know. I'm not sure. And then I meant to ask him right away, but we got ca- caught up with something else. And I don't know, maybe my voice was drowned out by how loud he's playing his music. And later on I said, Dad, that song that was playing in the car, you know, I think it was Garnet Mims. uh, This was the lyric that really stands out to me. What's that song? Because my dad collects so many, like, back-of-the-day CDs, albums, all that stuff. I for sure thought he would know. He just gave me a blank stare and was like, I don't know what you're talking about. So now you don't know. I have no idea. I used to Google the lyrics and nothing would come up. I have no idea what song it was. I've listened to so many Garnet Mims songs to find out if it was the song. Cannot find it. But this song is a bigger mystery.
1: This is a bigger mystery. This is a song that is known as the most mysterious song on the internet. How did this all get started? Well, so maybe we should listen to the song first. Here it is. This is the song that nobody knows who sings this or where it came from. going to say, I really love this song. It's very 80s. Yeah, you love the 80s. I do love the 80s. So it <laughs> sounds like something that is very familiar, but it's what, from Germany? Right. So here's how this
0: all began, Sammy. We're going to go back in time. The I 80s. love that when we do that. Yes, exactly. So between 1982 and 1984, a young man named Darius was a teenage music fan in the town of Wilmshaven in in north coast of Germany. Hopefully I pronounced that right. Anyways, just like I did when I was young, you know, in the 90s, we didn't have streaming or anything like that. So if you wanted to listen to new music and you wanted to keep that new music, you'd have to record the radio. I used to love doing this, recording songs off the radio, waiting for a good song to come on. So Darius was just like me. He was doing that, and one of his go-to programs was called Music for Young People, and it was on German public radio station NDR1. And so one of these tapes... Which uh, Darius calls Cassette 4, which he says included then new songs from 1984 by XT, uh, XTX, The Cure, and uh, another one of these 25 cuts that Darius deemed to be... He just liked it, so he recorded it. Unknown Pleasures, he called it. He didn't right. know much
1: about it, but he liked the song. So he recorded this one. Yeah. And now he doesn't know who did it. He, re- he doesn't even know how he really recorded it. It just
0: popped up on one of these tapes, and he doesn't there remember. wasn't an introduction from a DJ or anything, and this full song was there. He has no idea how he actually recorded this cuz he has he has no information about the song so he started like looking around for some of the lyrics and whatever like see if he could identify it zilch nothing couldn't figure out who it was
1: right i should also add here i know that people think they're clever and they're like well just shazam it like peter just nope. emailed me and he was like oh shazam it says antoine 1 Antoine 1 actually isn't the artist. Antoine 1 yeah. is somebody who tried to copyright this song years later but then dropped it. Exactly. Because he's not he doesn't actually have anything to do with the song. Right. So Shazam doesn't work, so
0: they tr- what happened is in 2007 his sister decided she would take up the cause. She posted a 1 minute 14 second clip. I don't know why. Why not just post why the, just do the song? whole song? Nobody's claiming it. Yeah. Uh, anyways, and so she posted it on a bunch of different um, websites that were sort of dedicated to Determining songs like obscure '80s songs, no one can
1: figure this what? thing out.
0: Yeah, it Reddit, seems to me, all you, these other sites, what? nobody knows.
1: Because like you know, you can put a picture on the internet and say, "Can somebody please identify this for me?" And people can do it. And you're telling me they've been putting this out there since 2007, and yeah. nobody knows. That's this when song. his sister put it out in 2007. Apparently, this has been a family mystery. Everyone in the family
0: has no idea who sings this song, and so they thought like there was maybe somebody will know. And so they, they went to the DJ from that radio program. Now he's still alive and he still works at NDR, but he has no memory of the track and isn't even really sure he even played it on his show. So is this a ghost song? City? No, it's not clear. I, it's from another dimension. <laughs> no. um, and so he said that if it, if he did, it could be sitting in his collection of 10,000 vinyl records, which includes music.
1: He spun on the air and, but he's like, I, I don't even know because he doesn't really remember the song. Because most DJs have a pretty good recollection of songs that they play or why they would choose a certain song totally. to play. Totally. And so then he said, Well, you know, uh, I did play some tapes
0: from underground Eastern rock bands, some that were mailed to him from the other side of the Berlin Wall. So he's like, maybe that's where it came from. But well, somebody threw a tape over the wall and yeah, that's just what he played? It, right into the window. And uh, so he says, I, I, but I'm not even sure if that's it. But he says it does sound like it might be from a German group. But then he doubts himself and said,
1: well, could it be Polish, Russia? So nobody knows Sammy. I'm very skeptical of it being from a band behind the wall because it sounds relatively mainstream for early 1980s. That's true. And they probably, yeah, they, they wouldn't, wouldn't have, have known had that known sound
0: or that sound. Yeah. Right. And so then he was that DJ whose name is uh, Paul Baskerville. He said, well, you know what? I'll check with another DJ who played the song, who may have played that song, who's play- on the air during that time. But unfortunately, that other DJ he wanted to check with died three years ago. So
1: there's really no leads into
0: what- I've never
1: actually heard anything like that before, that you can put something on the internet and nobody has a clue as to what it is. Nobody's come forward and said, oh, yeah, that was me. Or I recorded that for my friends, or yeah, we recorded that in somebody's garage or something like that. Right, of course, because the internet goes around the world. You would think somebody
0: Somebody. would be able. So, do we add this to like the greatest mysteries of the world? Like, no, don't be sarcastic. We don't.
1: Loch Ness, Area Fifty One, Area Fifty One, Loch Ness Monster, Sasquatch. No, we do not add it to (laughs) that. Damn. But thank you for that, Claire. We appreciate your help with that. Maybe you know something about this. Now we'll be back with our loser and winner of the day. But as we leave you, just have a listen one more time time, to the most mysterious song on the internet.